This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. It is not a stretch to say that the development of our society is tied in great part to the development of the different types of energy over the course of time. Just think about what electricity has led us to, or oil, or nuclear power. Just as, uh, But just as much as energy has allowed us to advance, it's also presented some issues as well, thinking about things like the nuclear bomb. Richard Rhodes takes a long look at this topic in his new book, Energy, A Human History. Richard is uh, author of numerous books, as well as a Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award winner. And it's a pleasure to have him joining us on the show. Richard, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you with us today. Um, seemingly, everywhere you turn, it feels like you see something that has been affected by energy in one form or another, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. Our entire society has developed over the centuries because of access to energy. There's a graph that I sometimes use when I'm speaking to audiences uh, that shows energy, well, let's say electricity usage per capita in relation to lifespan. And you can follow the development of societies that have more energy because people in those societies live longer until about 70 years, and then Mm -hmm. it levels off. And people, societies that use more energy than the 70-year mark typically are places like Norway, which are cold in the winter and they need it. You, you mentioned uh, that, that some of these transitions over the course of time uh, occurred mainly due to a lack of resource. Uh, it doesn't seem like it stops people from trying to find that resource, but still it, it does prevent, or I should say present, a little bit of a, of a quandary, does it not? Well, I think I think what's important, and one of the real points of going through the history of the development of energy, is that it's not just the energy source itself that has to be developed. You know, it would be lovely if we could just wave our hands and say, let's have solar power and let's have wind. But you have to build a huge infrastructure to go with these sources in order to make them available. And that, I think, is what divided and still divides countries that have not developed their uh, enough energy to, to uh, stabilize and enrich their, their cultures and societies compared to those that have. It's the building of pipelines. It's the drilling of wells. It's the uh, development of generating systems and the supply of energy to power those systems. Those are the things that have to be put in place before you can, can actually draw on that that raw energy wherever you find it. I, I am a, a fan of many things historical, and this book was was very interesting to me because of the of the historical aspects of it. And, and you talk, you know, on a variety of different levels, going back to obviously the days of Benjamin Franklin, who has a great tie here to the University of Pennsylvania, and, and even further about the impacts of energy. When you think about it from a historical perspective. Some of the greatest achievements that we have seen both here in the United States and around the globe are, are truly linked directly to uh, to various forms of energy. Absolutely. Well, Franklin and his uh, develop he used uh, uh, bottled static electricity. <laughs> that was the only kind of stored energy that was available to him uh, in the years before the development of the electric battery. But then you look at someone in London like uh, Humphrey Davy giving a demonstration of, of an electric arc, 
with a basement full of batteries. I mean, literally 1,200 batteries in wooden boxes, liquid batteries in wooden boxes in order to power a little electric arc light that he was showing it to an audience on the floor above. Yeah. Uh, it's just remarkable how many fundamental discoveries were also necessary. Franklin's the one who coined the term battery, for example, uh, as he thought about what this would be, uh, drawing on an image that was common in the military of lining up a bunch of cannons to batter uh, uh, a target. So that's where that word came from. But he was talking about lining up Leiden jars. <laughs> the battery, as we know, it hadn't come along yet. We are joined by Richard Rhodes, who is the author of the book, uh, Energy, A Human History. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Coal is obviously something that has been kind of a, a constant uh, in uh, the culture of the earth for for. You know, many centuries at, at this point. And obviously, when you go back in time, you, you read the stories about how coal was so prevalent and, and how it changed cities, but also how it damaged cities as, as well. And if if we were still living on some of the same principles of back then with coal as we are now, I would say from the other perspective that maybe we wouldn't have some of the developments that we that we've seen over the last couple of centuries. Right. Coal was not only the first really what's called punctiform energy source, that is to say it wasn't distributed across the land, but you drill a hole in the ground, puncture a hole in the ground, and dig down, and there you might find coal. So it was in that sense local, locatable, and therefore you could dig it out of the ground, put it on uh, ultimately on trains and move it to cities, it was much more concentrated energy even than wood, which people had been burning before. But it had the terrible drawback of intense air pollution, smoke uh, and sulfur and all sorts of, of um, heavy metals that are not good to breathe, Lord knows. Uh, this became such a problem that by 1660 in England, when they had really just switched to coal from wood, after they'd cut their wood down so yeah. far away from London that it cost more to ship the wood than the wood was worth, uh, they had to switch to coal, but they had to backfit all their houses with chimneys, which they had not had before. They let the, coal, the wood smoke just drift through the house and out the window. They liked the smell, even though, of course, it was toxic, too, but not as toxic as bituminous coal smoke. Uh, by 1660, London was so smogged over that you could see the, the smog cloud over the city from 50 miles oh. away. And John Evelyn, who was a... a kind of an amateur scientist, wrote the first book that the Royal Society of London ever published about how to clean up and sweeten the air in the city, hoping that the king would, would endorse this project. It was remarkably like the way we deal with uh, air, air pollution in cities today, industrial pollution. Move the factories to the, to the uh, suburbs, build a, a green belt of trees around the city, choose trees that are flowering trees so they smell good. Yeah. <laughs> it was 
it was a, a remarkably modern solution. But the king was so busy selling monopolies to restore his function, his his riches after the uh, the revolution that had just preceded his being thr- enthroned that that he wasn't interested. Didn't happen. Does it does it surprise you then that we still with all the the technological advances that we have and, and some of the other uh, types of, uh, of energy that we have seen come on board in the last hundred years that, that we still have a reliance to a degree on coal? No, because it's such an inexpensive, relatively speaking, source, and it's so useful for so many functions. I mean, the two really important functions for coal these days are iron production and the generation of electricity. Yeah. And we're turning away from that rapidly, particularly the electricity part. But but it's still, so many people have investment of one kind or another in coal that it's a very difficult job to convince our Congress, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, and and uh, the owners of the coal themselves, that, that they should back off, that it's not going to be good for our environment particularly in terms of CO2, to be continually burning coal. Natural gas has changed all that a lot. And now I guess coal is really beginning to be in decline. But it's been a problem and continues to be a problem. And the only solution has been to help deal with the coal smoke by by scrubbing and and generally filtering the coal smoke before it leaves the the chimney. You mentioned uh, the the going back a, a few centuries, uh, the move by uh, the the. Uh, UK to cut down a lot of the wood that they had in that region. Uh, And there's a couple of interesting stories off of that that I wanted to touch on. The first one is about William Shakespeare uh, that you talk about and uh, a group of theater partners uh, in, in terms of, of, of this uh, theater that they basically moved across a river because of the fact that it was cheaper for them, correct? Exactly. Yes, the first theater in London was called the Theater, and Shakespeare and his pals, the Burbage brothers, owned it. Uh, but they didn't own the land, and the guy who owned the land called in the lease one time in 1699 and said, if you want to leave the building, I'll turn it into apartments. And they said, no, we'll take it with us. Uh, and that was partly because they wanted to build a larger theater, which became the famous Globe, which has now, of course, been restored in London. Uh, but they also, it was a lot cheaper to use the wood that had already been, been cut and trimmed and shaped into a theater. All they had to do was basically enlarge it. So they took the thing down in a couple of days and shipped it across the Thames and built the famous Globe. The other story uh, involves the time uh, uh, right around the Revolutionary War, uh, where I guess for a while, uh, a lot of the wood that was being used for the masts of British warships was coming out of New England and because they were down on, on, on the amount of wood that they had. And then you have the time of the Revolutionary War coming around, and this ended up, you know, obviously dissolving this relationship. And I guess it, it kind of put the British Navy in a bit of a crimp for a while. Exactly. It, again, we don't think of trees as being part of a national security apparatus, but these huge mast trees 
in England that were partic- that were grown deliberately for to have one single trunk of wood for the mainmast of the British Navy, which the British called their wooden wall that protected them from from France and Spain and the other countries in Europe who, from time to time, were fighting wars with them. Uh, when they had cut down all their mast trees, and it took about 120 to 50 years to grow one of these trees, when they cut down all their mast trees, they turned to New England, which was still very much a primal wilderness in, in 1600, 1640, uh, 1700, to cut to take the big, beautiful pines of New England to replace the mast trees they no longer had. Uh, but as you said, when the revolution came along, that source was no longer available. They had to turn, I think, to, uh, the, to the Scandinavian countries for their trees. But just as we don't like to think that uh, that our sources of supply for our military materials are coming from other countries, because that's not as secure as if we produce them ourselves, they had the same dilemma. And and. The great age of wind power, which was the 18th century, with sailing ships with cannon uh, all along their decks, uh, was was a time of crisis for the British for that reason. I did not realize, uh, and you bring it up in the book, is the fact that uh, back here in the United States, uh, that Henry Ford and Thomas Edison were linked, and I guess Ford had worked for for Edison for, uh, for a period of time. That was a surprise to me, too. Uh, Ford worked for Edison in one of his uh, light factories where steam engines generated electricity for lighting as the night manager for a year or two, and then he became the general manager. And it was out of that, he moved from that to tinkering with the first Ford car, which was a lovely little buggy with a small gasoline engine behind and under the seat, uh, and no brakes. You didn't need brakes. All you had to do was shut down the engine, and the yeah. car would, would roll to a halt. But it only weighed about 500 pounds. It was quite a nice little machine. Yeah. didn't have a roof, of course, but... Yeah. So, so that was the, those two guys, I suppose, really, Ford learned some of his... Uh, organizational skills from Edison. Edison really had quite an enterprise going. But then again, the uh, the auto industry obviously plays a big role in this as well in terms of the development of, of you know a, a new type of transportation, but the energy sources that they were using as they were developing new types of cars throughout the early days of, uh, of that industry. Most people don't realize that when oil was discovered in 1859, drillable oil in uh, Pennsylvania. The the purpose of looking for it and using it was for lighting, not for automobiles. The automobile didn't come along for another 50, 40 years. Yeah. So gasoline, one of the products of distillation of petroleum, was a waste product. They didn't have any use for it. You couldn't put it in a lamp. It was too volatile. It would explode. So they would dump it on the, uh, on the ground uh, and let it evaporate into the air at the refinery, or more typically in those days, dump it into the nearest river, yeah. uh, as the slaughterhouses did with their waste. Rivers were really polluted at that <laughs> time for that reason. Uh, it was not until 
the development of the automobile, that gasoline suddenly had a function. And even then, there was a real kind of struggle back and forth between four different technologies, the, the steam-powered car, the Stanley Steamer, uh, the car powered by electricity with, with the batteries of the day, which women particularly liked because you didn't have to crank it and cranking a car. Yeah. If anyone remembers what that was like, was very hard to do. Uh, and then and then alcohol, grain alcohol, which was still being produced. Uh, the first Ford Model T had a switch next to the steering wheel that allowed you to switch the carburetor from alcohol to gasoline and back. So it it was all up for grabs until, for various reasons that I go into, because they make amazing stories in themselves, for various reasons, gasoline won the day. And by 1915, almost all automobiles in production were gasoline-powered. But what is interesting is that with some of those uh, those energies, with, with gas and with oil, that that issue of waste is something that you know is is still a relative relative concern in some areas right now even today oh absolutely not only the waste from refineries but but also simply the pollution coming out of the cars themselves yeah one of the one of the really tragic stories that i tell is the problem of getting to a higher compression engine in the second half of the the second decade of the 20th century, because one way would have been to mix alcohol with gasoline and increase the octane of the gasoline that way. But for reasons that had more to do with the competition between General Motors and Ford than they did with any technical problem, uh, the solution that, that uh, General Motors found was to use put lead in gasoline, a particular yeah. kind of lead. And that, of course, meant that hundreds and hundreds of tons of lead in the form of car exhaust got uh, spread out across our cities and, and presumably contributed to the the uh, damage to the brain of children that lead causes in, in when they're exposed to it, not only then lead paint, as children had to deal with for a long time, but also car exhaust. And we didn't change from uh, into catalytic converters in our automobiles in the 1970s to get rid of the lead. We changed, I mean, for the lead that was polluting the air, we changed gasoline to non-leaded gasoline in the 1970s because the lead fouled the catalytic converter that was getting rid of the smog. So it was not really something that was ever actually solved, except fortuitously. We did that's it. The kind of that's the kind of blowback, if you will, that yeah. every new energy source has. No energy source is without its problems. We are talking with Richard Rhodes, who is the author of the book Energy: A Human History. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I want to bring you forward now to, to today because obviously we have things uh, like wind energy and solar, which obviously are trying to make an impact for the positive uh, as alternative sources. They are still, you know, in a battle to a degree with some of the traditional sources uh, and how they are produced. Do you think that that we are going to see those types of energies be able to become the norm more so, whether it be here in the U.S. or other parts of the world? You know, the problem, the fundamental problem of energy transitions is how very long they take. And that's really the point of my book, in a way. It typically takes about 100 years to move from an energy source being 1% of the world total 
to 50% of the world total, assuming it, it makes it that far. That means that news sources that have just have not even reached 1%, like wind and solar, aren't really going to make much of an impact over the next 50 years. And we're going to have to rely much more than I think Americans have been comfortable with on those sources, certainly where they make sense. And they do make sense in places where there's lots of wind, places where there's lots of sunlight. Yeah. But, of course, they have their drawbacks in terms of what's called intermittency. They're not always on. The wind doesn't always blow. The sun goes down. Then you have to find some other way to power things uh, until these sources come back up. And the intermittency itself is a problem because uh, it's hard to, you know, electricity is instantaneous. It's produced and it's immediately at the, at the wall socket. There's no storage yet of any capacity. So if something stops and starts all the time, you have to have some way to back that up. Yeah. And today we're using natural gas. Nuclear power, which is a good fundamental baseload source of energy, can't really be ramped up and down that fast the way, uh, the way reactors work. So we've got a real problem in the United States. Well, let me finish what I was trying to say before. Every source of energy that is non-carbon, the problem today is we have to decarbonize our energy supply. Yeah, yeah. And that means we have to use everything that we can find. We have to use hydropower where that's available, solar where it makes sense, nu nuclear as a baseload source, much more extensively than I think it is today. Asia has discovered that that's the partial answer to their problems. There are 125 new reactors under, under development or construction in China today. And that is pretty typical of where those countries, because the fundamental problem isn't only how long it takes to transition. It's also that we're trying to do two things at once with most of the world, which is decarbonize the energy supply, but at the same time, make it available to peoples who have been living on the thin margins of poverty, who now want to move into a, a better life for themselves, more like the one we take for granted in the United States. That's a big, big challenge in a time of global warming. Richard, thank you very much for coming on the show. It is a, a fantastic look. I, I love talking about stories that involve history, either the U.S. or the world. Thank you for giving us some time today. Thank you. Great to have you with us. Richard Rhodes. The book is Energy, A Human History. It just came out uh, in bookstores. It's available uh, there and online for your purchase. It's a really, it's an entertaining book to look at uh, all of these different aspects of energy, both in the past and in the present as well. And great to have Richard joining us on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.